Another live stream Sunday morning we are. I cannot tell you how much we miss gathering together with you as a family, worshiping our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we sure hope and pray that we will start to gather again safely, but soon. Uh, please turn in your Bibles as we are in the book of Revelation. It is a eight-week series which began last week, and we are studying the first three chapters of Revelation with our main focus on uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in verse, in, excuse me, in chapters two and three. So turn there with me to Revelation. Just a quick review from last week. We learned that the book of Revelation is a book uh, is mainly uh, what they call apocalyptic genre or literature. The word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word revelation, which means to unveil or to uncover, to make known, to reveal. Apocalyptic literature is uh, a specific form of genre that includes prophecy, but and also largely involving symbols and imageries, predictions, disasters, destructions. Uh, is very common in antiquity, in both in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, and even outside of Holy Scripture. And we learned uh, from chapter 1 last week that not only the type of literature that it is, the unveiling of God, the revelation of God, the apocalyptic of God, but that it originated from God the Father who gave it to God the Son, chapter 1, verse 1, who then in turn makes it known to his servants, to his slaves, to his saints, children of God, by sending an angel to the apostle John. We also learned from last week that John is on the island. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos for boldly preaching the gospel, for making Christ known. It was not only on the Lord's day that he was given this revelation, but he also announces a blessing, only place in scripture as a blessing announced on those, verse three, reads aloud the words of this prophecy, those who hear it and who keep it, what was written in it. So this book is meant to be read aloud, uh, to be accepted and received and to be kept and obeyed. Revelation, we said last week, is from Jesus and about Jesus. He's the hero of this story. We observe that even in the triune greeting in verses 4 through 6, where we see the description of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But then in verses 4, excuse me, 5 and 6, we see God the Son and this wonderful description of who Christ is and his work of redemption and what his children will inherit. And then verse 7, a real short glimpse of what will come later in the book. We won't be there, but toward the end of the book, you can read it for yourself. Uh, the climatic reality of the return of Christ. Revelation, we said, has been written to encourage believers to overcome all hindrances and difficulties by persistently and consistently being obedient to and holding to the faith. Holding on to Christ. Knowing that God is in control of all History And he alone will bring, in the end, the consummation of all the ages. We took from Dr. Aiken, this uh, purpose of the book is uh, a wonderful description and declaration of the majesty and glory of the warrior lamb, King Jesus, who is coming again to reign and to rule forever. Verses 9 through 11, John gives us the address for these letters. If you look there with me, it's in... Uh, verse uh, 11, to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
And then we ended in chapter 1 with this grand vision of this risen Lamb and Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, verses 12 through 15. At the end, John could only describe as he turns around and he's seen the Lamb, the risen King, in his glorious state. As if he was looking directly at the radiance of a noonday sun. Verse 16b. His face, Jesus, was like the sun shining in full strength. Then in verse 17. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last In other words, I am the great I am. Jesus declaring what God has said about himself, the Father, in verse 8. The Alpha and Omega. Jesus saying, I am before all things, and I am after all things. Fear not. I am the first and the last. Verse 18. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Obviously, a reference to the death, burial, a resurrection of Jesus. He is the living one. Death has no power over him. It could no longer hold him. He is alive forevermore, having died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, been raised from the dead. Jesus now has the keys of death and Hades. Death's power is in his hand. He gives control of who gets locked in and who gets liberated. That's why Jesus tells John, don't be afraid. Have all authority belongs to me. Verse 19, he tells him, write therefore the things that you have seen, the vision you just saw, write those things down. Those that are going on now, the seven literal churches that he's writing to, write those down, the letters, and those that are to take place after this, chapter 4 to the end of chapter 22, the consummation of all things. See the outline of the book. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he makes that clear to us. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus... Right. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, verse 5, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, (laughs) which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now we know from chapter 1, verse 20, that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But what we're not sure about 
and there's been much a debate about this, is who are the angels of the seven churches? Some think they were truly angelic beings that represent, kind of represent the churches, angels overseeing certain churches that have been, that, that gather. Some thinks that uh, they weren't angelic beings. They were pastors, leaders of the church. The word angel, anglos, uh, can mean just messenger. Uh, one side of the argument, you have those who point out that nowhere in Revelation does the word angel ever refer to human beings. And the word angel is mentioned a lot in Revelation. And therefore, it can't possibly mean something different here. And although the word messenger can be used for human and human beings in other parts of Scripture, nowhere in Scripture is it used for uh, leaders of the church. But then there are other side that say the word angel uh, means means messenger or is a leader of the church because the angels in this text and in all these letters are are they're seen to be responsible for the church. And nowhere in Scripture does it say angels are responsible in any way for the church leadership. Early uh, Earthly leaders are accountable. Men, leaders of the church, are accountable to God for the churches they represent. Others say, listen, the word angels, anglos, simply means messenger. or Somehow uh, it's referring to a delegate or someone that John is sending to the churches. I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I don't have a bent either way. It depends on what day <laughs> that I'm reading the text. And some of you may be thinking, why have I spent, a, you know, the past two minutes talking about it? Because there's five of you out there that's going to call me an ass. So I just thought I'd put that out there. And you know who you are. Um, so I, I did that. Now, before we get into the letter, what I want to do, and I'll just do this one time, is uh, point you to the actual structure of each one of the letters or the, the pattern of the letters. So when you read these letters, these seven letters to the churches, you will find this this pattern. You'll find first the location. Jesus addresses the church, the local assembly that's been gathered in specific places. Second, you'll find a description of Jesus. They're different, uh, taken from this glorious, uh, from chapter one, and they're, they're different in some of the letters, but you'll see a description to say, hey, this is Jesus talking. Three, you'll find the information that's known to Christ about the church. There are some positive and some negative, sometimes both. Condemnation and commendation. The information known. Then you'll find an exhortation, what they need to do. <laughs> what needs to happen or what needs to stop happening. And number five, the invitation. Jesus admonishes in each one of these books that they are to listen up to what the Spirit has to say, to understand what's being said. And finally, there's a declaration. Jesus promises a reward for those who remain Faithful. Now, some of that changes slightly, but that is kind of the overall picture of, or the overall description or pattern of the book, the, the letter, excuse me. So, let's jump into the first letter. The first letter is to the church of Ephesus. Now, what I did was I, 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 I kind of categorized this through four main headings, okay? The presence of Christ, the particular situation of the churches, the proper response, what they are to do, and then the promise that was announced. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning. So number one, the presence of Christ. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him, the description of Christ, from chapter 1, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstand. 
Right out the gate, we find out again that it is Jesus who is behind the words that has been spoken to this church. And these words, I believe, are both a word of warning and a word of comfort. As I sat down this week studying for the text, I thought to myself, what if we, the leaders here at King's Chapel, received a personalized letter from Jesus Christ. Now, I realize and recognize there is a sense in which all of Scripture is a personalized letter to the church. But what if it said to the angel in the church of King's Chapel in Glenmont? I can tell you the hair in the back of my neck would probably stand up. But let me, let me, let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. First of all, you need to know that Ephesus was a privileged church. I mean, how many churches could say that the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote, you know, so much of our New Testament, along with the faithful couple, Aquila and Priscilla, planted the church? Not many could say that, right? And then that church was given to and turned over and pastored by by Paul's son in the faith, Timothy. How many churches can say that the Apostle Paul spent three years teaching in that church? Like us, uh, sorry, Pastor Lou, uh, Paul's here. Um, give him about three years, then you could you could start preaching again, right? This city, this church in the city, it's a privileged church, is in the is the capital of Asia Minor. Uh, it's a city that's located uh, in the west coast of Asia Minor, near the mouth of the Caista River, a seaport in the Aegean Sea, and it, because of where it sits in Asia Minor, it became a very, very important commercial center en route from Rome to the east. It was also a city that was very well known for their pagan religion and cult practices and lots of temples uh, that were built in Ephesus. Uh, of course, if you're not sure or, or you may not know, the pride of the city was a temple called Artemis. In the Greek, Roman uh, is Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It was uh, a, a statue, a temple that was built. And Artemis was known to be a, a patroness to young women. She was the goddess of fertility, a, a protection cult prostitute uh, was important in that city as they worship her and priestesses and many of these uh, uh, temples were filled with sexual immorality and it drew numbers and uh, you know large numbers of people you can imagine from all over the world to this temple of Artemis or Diana. They were known for their idolatry, they were known for their sexual immorality uh, in that city and if you're familiar with the book of Acts in chapter 20, the Apostle Paul calls for the Ephesian elders to come to Miletus and he warns them that false teachers are going to come. And they would draw, they would come and try to draw people away from the faith. It says this, fierce wolves will come in, Paul says to them, the elders at, uh, in the Ephesian church. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. It's obviously come true, as we will see. So I think it's, it's important for us to first say that every church that has been planted is planted in a particular place, in a particular culture, and all churches have strengths and weaknesses. Every church has a way of doing things. Um, although the message stays the same, the methods change, right? As we call contextualization, where we take the message and we look to explain it in a particular place, uh, the truth of Christ in a particular context, in a particular culture. 
Many times ministry is done and determined by uh, who we're trying to reach. Where in history? Where is it located? It's because people are made up, you know, people and cultures change. Uh, people uh, are different. They come in different shapes and sizes, right? Um, and that's why we we serve God, we worship God, and we, we serve our community and live our life together in community and the church differently at different times, right? I mean, it, even leaders are, need to be aware that um, not only leaders but also members of the church are shaping the way ministry happens. Everybody has certain temperaments, gifts and talents, even experiences that shape our, look, uh, shape our uh, outlook and the way we do things. There's a particular culture in which we find this church. There's a particular culture in which we find ourselves living out the life of Christ. And with that said, Christ knows these things better than you and I do. He knows the community that they were in. He established his church. He's the head of his church. He knows the idols of that community. He knows the idols of our community. He knows our community well. Look what it says. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. The word hold is is actually a different word or stronger word from chapter 1 verse 6. It means that he has a firm grasp, a firm grip. Christ holds those representatives firmly in his hands that no one, John 10, no one can snatch them away. His right hand indicates his authority. His right hand indicates his sovereignty and control over the church. It demonstrates his possession of the church and protection of the church. Look what else it says. He also walks among the lampstands means that his very presence is with the church. Christ knowing them, knows them thoroughly, and grasping them in their hands and lives and ministries are in his hands. In fact, the words hold and walk are both present active uh, participles indicating that the action of the Lord, him holding and walking, is present and ongoing. He is constantly and vigilantly watchful, not only over the church in Ephesus, but over our church as well. Our church as well. Jesus is present. Jesus is in control. Jesus possesses and protects the church. Dan Aiken writes this, Jesus is always with us, watching our actions, hearing our words, perceiving our motives, reading our thoughts. What assurance. And then he writes, what accountability, end quote. I mean, how different would yours or mine demeanor be as we gather in worship if the one that we respected the most was sit, came into church and sat down right next to us? What would happen? Would we be more attentive? Would we be more responsive? Would we be more deliberate, more careful about what we're doing? I think the answer might be yes. Yet someone infinitely more significant, infinitely more authoritative than anyone in the universe is walking among us each and every Lord's day. The presence of Christ. Now let's look at the particular situation. First, a commendation, verse 2. I know your 
works. He's not just saying, I'm acquainted with them. What Jesus is saying is he has full and thorough knowledge of everything that's going on. Nothing escapes his attention. And he says, I know your works. Then he gives this word of commendation as he, uh, as evidence of what he knows and what they are doing is good. He uses three nouns. Their works, their toils, their patient endurance. When he says their works, he's talking about their deeds, their actions, the tasks that they are about. Things that they are doing. They're a busy church. Their toils, kapos, strenuous labor, producing weariness, toil to the point of exhaustion. The Ephesian church were paying the price to serve the Lord. The word patience, endurance carries this meaning of, of being, of, of enduring on the trial. They kept going when the going got tough. Keistermaker says this, it is an inner quality that is expressed in waiting for Jesus in whose absence the believer steadfastly witnesses for him even to the point of suffering death through persecution, end quote. Busy church. Working hard, pressing on, pressing on to bigger and better things in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of sexual sins in, in that culture. I know you work your toils, your patience, endurance, and you cannot bear with them, second part of verse 2, and you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found to be false. Just what Paul told them, right? So evil men, unfortunately, not from outside the church, but from in the church, claiming to be apostles. They were, they were charlatans, right? We call them imposters. Yeah, even in the first century. Like the charlatan Ken Copeland, if you saw that video, recently claiming to blow away COVID-19 with the breath of God. These churches tested false and phony charlatans like that. These false teachers claim to be apostles. Now, we're sure that he's not talking about the 12 apostles, which you read in Scripture, right? The word apostle means um, um, someone who is sent, sent ones, literally, with the authority of the one sending them. They represent them like an ambassador. Generally speaking, when you hear apostle, you think of the 12. I know I think of the 12 with their special appointment, and the special authority that Christ gave them, they were with him. They, they were with him during ministry. They're with, with him, uh, during his death. They were eyewitness of his death and resurrection. Acts 1 uh, talks about that, how they needed to replace Judas with someone with those criterias. Ephesians 2.20 says the apostles, the original apostles, uh, were, were, were part of the building foundation of the church. So here at King's Chapel, we recognize that Scripture speaks of capital A apostles, which are the 12, and then small a apostles, which are more like church planters. And Scripture kind of goes along that way as well, Barnabas and James, and there are other people in apostles, small a. It doesn't say exactly what these false teachers were doing or, or what they were saying or anything real specifically or even how they were being tested. So I'm going to draw some conclusions. Number one, I think... One of the things that these false apostles were bringing into the church was pride. Was pride. An, uh, a, uh, a I know better attitude than you. Uh, just like today, the, these, these leaders who want total allegiance, they demand total allegiance. I mean, who walks around and say, I'm an apostle, right? Uh, no one I know. 
The Ephesian church had tested them. Arist, active indictive, a, a thorough examination. They just didn't take everything they said as gospel. I think it came with a, a sense of, of pride. And one of the ways I think they, they could spot a false teacher, and you see this in 1 John as well, is what do you believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Many cults, many false teachers, First John, uh, John talks about it in his, in, his, in his epistle. One of the many ways you false teachers is to say, what do you believe about the person and work of Christ? Many cults started by reducing Jesus to a created being and diminishing his work on the cross, his, his substitutionary atonement. You got cults like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. Or you can ask the question, what do you believe about orthodoxy? What I mean is there, there's maybe not so much today, but there, within the past few years, there have been this real push and almost rebellious spirit toward orthodoxy where, where people and church leaders question every point of historically held truth because they think all of Christianity is in question. They question the virgin birth. They question the reality of hell. Guys like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren endorse that kind of nonsense. Or they may come up, as other false teachers come up with these new teachings on, on major biblical doctrine with really no biblical or academic discernment. False teachers like Joseph Prince and Andrew Farley fit that category. Now, I'm not saying we should blindly believe everything that the church has ever taught always. But we need to examine, we need to test, we need to tread very carefully when we are opposing foundational truths taught by the church for centuries. Verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Notice, same word is used in verse 2, in the negative, now in the positive. You did not bear up, in verse 2, the church could not bear or tolerate the wicked men, but now they do bear and tolerate hardship in Christ's name, and they have not grown weary. The picture that John is painting for us, uh, that Jesus is saying uh, through John, is, is one not wishing to avoid responsibility. It bears the burden of serving the Lord with, with, with resolute and zeal. Now, I don't know about you, but I, <laughs> I find it uh, difficult, uh, more difficult, when under enormous pressure and, and enormous hardship, and things may not be going my way, to endure patiently for Christ's sake. I find myself rather wanting to lash out, maybe, and not love others. But I, I and you and we need to what? lean into Christ. We need to rely on the power of Christ. We need to be filled with the Spirit, that continuous filling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can endure patiently when when things are against us. Things may not be going our way. They do not grow weary. Jump down to verse 6, another commendation. Yet this you have as well. You hate the works of Nicolaitans. Can't get that word right this morning. I had it right later before, which I also hate. We'll call him Nicholas. Who are these people? That's a million dollar question. People don't really know who they are. They're not mentioned anywhere in scripture, but here and in verse 14 and 15. So we're not really sure. Two possible um, ideas or thoughts of who they were. Um, in the second century, some of the church fathers mentioned that this cult may be a cult that came out of Nicholas in chapter 6 of Acts. 
uh, one of the, one of, one of the deacons, the beginning deacons, men who had chosen to serve the church and help them with the problem of daily distribution. This man had gone astray, um, and apostatized and, and left the faith and took people with him. Um, that's the second century. They were talking about that. There's no way to really know. Um, or substantiate that. But if you look down in verses 14 and 15, interesting, they're mentioned again, with a, with a possible parallelism, this, this idea of comparing them with someone else. And if you look, they're compared with Balaam. So either this group was the same as Balaam or possibly just like Balaam. If you look at that, it's the church of uh, Pergamum. And we'll get to that when we get to that verse. But so they're saying, they're kind of put together uh, uh, Balaam and, 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 and the Nicolaitans, you know, they, they were, they were kind of doing the same thing. Um, if you know anything about Balaam, and we'll talk about this in two weeks, um, he was an Old Testament prophet who induced the Israelites to carry out, uh, these lustful desires and attempt to, to conquer the people of Israel through deceit. And Nicholas means conquering the people, so we're not sure. But but I do think that's probably the case. I mean, think of the culture they're in. There's there's this 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 sexually crazed culture, and, and people um, are are looking to 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 draw people away from Christ into that kind of lifestyle. So we could say this church at Ephesus, this church has has good and strong conviction of truth. To combat the, combat these false apostles who, who wanted to capture the minds of those, uh, around them who in the church to deceive them, deceive them with false doctrine. Or, or these Nicolaitans who, who, who through idolatrous pagan worship wanted them to be involved with sexual immorality and, and participating in eating foods offered to idols. Again, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. They were strong against these churches. They were strong against these falsehoods. But notice what it says. It doesn't say that he that that you should hate them, but hate their works. You see that in verse six. But hate their works. Even Jesus hates their works. So while we must stand against heresy, while we must stand against false teaching and false teachers. It could lead people astray. But remember, they are too made in the image and likeness of God. And yet, they must remain the object of God's love. Yes, strong correction. Yes, stand up for truth. But never should they become an object of our hate or vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So we have this wonderful picture of this church as of yet. This life of this church. It's a church that was diligent. It was the church that was hardworking. It was a church that was characterized by great patience, a zeal for moral purity, and unquestioned orthodoxy. Great church in the midst of a corrupt culture, but truth without love is a problem. Truth without love is a problem. A condemnation. Verse 4. But I have this against you, Jesus says. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Commentators try and figure out what is he, what exactly is he saying? Is he, is he saying the love you have for me, Jesus? Or is he saying the love that you have for one another? <clears throat> I think what is meant here is both. You have abandoned the love you had first for Christ, which flows out in love for one another. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of 
of preachers had it right when on September 26 in 1858 in London preached on Revelation 2-4 and said this. When we first loved the Savior, how earnest we were. There was not a single thing in the Bible that we did not think most precious. There was not one command of his that we did not think to be like fine gold and choice silver. Again, how happy you used to be in the ways of God. Your love was of that happy character that you could sing all day long. But now your religion has lost its luster. The gold has become dim. You know that you have come to the sacramental table. You often come there without enjoying it. There was a time when every bitter thing was sweet. Whenever you heard the word, it was precious to you. Again, when we were in our, again, when we were in our first love, what we would do for Christ. What would we do for Christ? Now he writes, how little we do. Some of the actions we performed when we were young Christians, but just converted when we look back upon them, seems to have been wild and like idle tales, end quote. I think you got it right. When the love of Christ is in our hearts, it flows towards things and to people and to deeds and love for other people. Love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Authentic love for God instinctively leads to conveying love for the neighbor. And loving your neighbor is an expression of love for Christ. This is not a a, a lost love. It's an abandoned love. A, a, A left love. You have left and abandoned your first love. Well, that's the remedy. What is, what is the proper response? To remember, to repent, and to repeat. And the order is very significant. First, remember. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Verse 5. Remember where you have fallen. Present imperative, keep on remembering. Never, never, never forget. What do we remember? Remember what it's like when you first realized that you were justly under the wrath of God, that God is holy and you are judged by your sins or for your sins. Remember what it's like when you truly and fully recognize that God is not only holy, but the deeds and, and, and your selfish decisions was a, a stench and affront to the holiness of God and to the purity of Christ. Remember the number of times that we've acted out of greed or lust and, or we fail to act out of laziness and a lack of faith. Remember the gospel. Dr. James Hamilton, a professor of Southern Baptist Theological Sem- Seminary, says this. How long has it been since you felt the weight of all your guilt? Realized anew that you had no deals to make. No appeasement to offer, nowhere to flee, and no hope that God might forgive what you have done only to experience anew the wonder of God's mercy in Christ Jesus, end quote. Here's the point. Remember the gospel. Because of the free gift of faith, you and I trusted Christ. All our guilt has been freely pardoned. 
Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. The steadfast love and grace and mercy of Christ places you and I on a a sure foundation, a foundation that could never be shaken. And because of Christ's love for you and I, we stand by faith in Christ, fully forgiven, completely cleansed, amazingly adopted, fully justified, and wonderfully welcomed into his presence, into his family as children of God. How to remember and return to our first love? Rehearse the gospel. From God's holiness to our sin, to God's justice and wrath against sin, to the perfect, spotless provision of God in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And to the mercy that he shows us every single day. The rehearsing and remembering of the gospel is what will fire anew our first love. Can you see Can you see just how this church, our church, that church back then, the danger of chasing after being doctrinally sound and how it can draw you away from the love of Christ? Being doctrinally sound sound orthodoxy in our beliefs can cause a church, a people to abandon, to forsake, leave their first love if the pursuit of truth abandons love. You begin to not only hate false doctrine, but hate people. In our in, in search to be doctrinally sound, you become selfish. It's all about what you think is right. And you forget that your sins and my sins are just as filthy and worthy of damnation than the next guy. I mean, no one originally comes to Christ for forgiveness of sin. They see the, the, the brokenness in their sin and, and is an affront to a holy God by comparing themselves. No, they compare it to the beauty and purity of God himself. And it is that reality, if we keep that in the forefront of our minds, we will, it, it will help us not to abandon our first love. If we find ourselves there this morning, if we, if we sense that there's a self-righteousness, there's, there's an abandonment of love in our own hearts, a love for Christ, well, we'll have good news this morning. There's a remedy, right? Not only remember the gospel, the love of Christ and the love he has for you, but repent. That's what it says next, to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Metanoia, change your mind about sin. It means to change your mind, resulting in a change of attitude, a change of action. It involves the mind, the emotion, and the will. Think differently about your sin. John is saying, listen, church, turn away from thinking from the way that you think that makes you presume on Jesus and things that make you lose sight of his glory and his worth. Repent. Turn. Whenever I think about genuine repentance, I think of 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There can be an overwhelming sense of guilt. There can be an overwhelming sense uh, and acknowledgement of sin with remorse but no repentance. No turning to God. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow and pain over worldly consequences about getting caught and looking bad. It is more concerned about how 
I feel, the offender feels, than what it looks like before a holy God and our sin against God. As David said, my sin is first and first and foremost against you alone. But godly sorrow that acknowledges pain, godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance, is, is seen first in what it has done to the relationship with God, and is a determination to turn from it to God and seek his hand, his love, his forgiveness. And when one remembers the gospel, the love of Christ in the gospel, when one repents in the gospel, seeking the forgiveness of, 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 of God in Christ in the gospel, then we can get to the repeating part. To return and do the works you did at first. The word first, it, protos, means first in time, first in rank, first in place. In other words, saying to look back on your life as a new believer and remembering how important it was on the things that you did and how what you did out of the outflow of the gospel it becomes no longer just a duty. It becomes no longer just a routine. But if you remember and you repent, it becomes an act of love, excuse me, an act out of love. You see, this church was doing the right things, but not for the right reasons. Let me say that again. The church was doing the right things, but not for the right reason. Why we do what we do matters to Jesus. Dr. Aiken again. Labor is no substitute for love. Purity, no substitute for passion. Deeds are no substitute for devotion, end quote. The first works are the final piece of the puzzle for restoring our first love. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, I mean, a lot of things came flooded into my mind this week. What are some of the things you were doing back in the day when, when Jesus was so sweet and precious to you? What were you doing? I remember some of the things I was doing. I, was, I, remember, I remember driving my car. I was a new believer. And I was just praying for every single soul I saw on the side of the road. They could be jogging. They could be walking. They could be waiting for a bus. I prayed for them. Just pray for them. What are you doing? What are you doing back? What were you doing back in the day when you were just flabbergasted by how much Jesus loved you and freely forgave you of all your sins? Right? I looked at no one, judged no one, right? It's like, if God can save me, He could save anyone in the universe. No one is outside His hand of salvation. What were you doing back in the day when you walked, talked, and sang and thought continuously of Christ and the gospel? Persist, you know, always aware of his presence and, and constantly in touch and talking with him in prayer. What were some of those things that you did? Our Lord was and is saying, either do these things, either remember. I mean, what you need to do is remember, repent, and repeat. Or, he says, you will lose your light-bearing capacity. Left love means lost light. If not, look what he says. If not, verse 5, if not, who's going to come? I will come. I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, we know the lampstands are churches, right? Not individuals. But if they do not remember, they do not repeat, uh, repent and repeat, Jesus says, I will myself take away your standing as a church. To remove the lampstand, it, it means it's taking, it's, it, it, the church ceases to be the church, ceases to be light to the surrounding communities. 
But very clearly, he's talking to churches, right? So we know from other scripture and we know from what Jesus said that his kingdom, his church will not go away, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is a threat to the local assembly. And in no way will stop his kingdom, stop the growth of his church because of a local body who lost its light. And what's interesting also about this verse, if you look with me in verse 5, the word repent right there at the beginning, remember therefore from where you fall and repent, is used twice. You see it there and then you see it the very last uh, uh, part of the verse uh, is unless you repent. And what's interesting about that, I'll share it with you, is the first one in the beginning of the verse is in the imperative move. In other words, it's a command. Jesus is commanding the church to repent, okay? There's teaching out there that says, as a Christian, you shouldn't repent. Well, Jesus said repent. So I'm going with Jesus. He said repent, it's a command. The second use of the term is what they call aris, active, subjective, uh, subjunctive, and the mood is uncertain. So, so what's happening here is that Jesus is commanding the church to repent, but what the Ephesians do about it, while known to God and within his sovereign plan, is up to them. He's calling them to repent, and then it's up to them to do so. Will they repent and not suffer the removal of their witness? Is in some degree up to them. Remember what we say here all the time. The sovereignty of God who oversees all things and human responsibility are two railroad tracks that drive all of history. Repent. It's the command. What will you do? A church where truth is king but love ceases can no longer function properly as a local expression of Christ's body. Some churches die out for a lack of outreach, maybe, maybe some really poor planning, a lack of qualified leadership. But some churches, like this church of Ephesus, lose their light by the loss of loving Christ first and how they treat other people. The entire congregation was not facing apostasy as individuals, but the church was facing the loss of their effective ministry. And the church ceases to be the church where Jesus walks among, where the light is shining, when it no longer loves and serves its master and loves and serves other people. It's that simple. And now look at the promise, verse 7. And we'll close here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a loving call to hear what the Holy Spirit is teaching to these seven churches. Notice the change. It goes from singular or individual, he who has an ear, to the plural, to the, what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Right? It's a plural. It goes from the singular, hear it, to the churches. The message is to all the churches, uh, all the, uh, the churches of all time applicable to everyone, particularly all the seven that were getting these letters. And notice that even though Christ is the one dictating his letter to John, look what it says. It says the Spirit has been speaking. What the Spirit says to the churches. Well, here's the Spirit of God, the, the, the Spirit of truth, the author and teacher of Scripture is calling us to evaluate, calling us to evaluate 
our response to the things that have been taught, the things that have learned, the things that have been uh, given to us and applied to this message. What the Spirit says to the church, listen up. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Those who listen and do what Christ, the Holy Spirit says, will be conquerors. Maybe your translation says victorious or overcomers. Present participle, the conquering ones. It's not completed. It's something that we have to continually undertake to press on. And, and, and you can see how the, these, these people who are under severe persecution, under testing, uh, would, would, would take heart to this. In other words, what Christ is saying is we need to press on. We, we, we need to press on and we need to, to, to be conquerors by anticipating and growing and grounding our hope in the final victory already won by Jesus. And those who are conquerors, who will remain faithful to Christ, who continue and press on no matter what the cost, look what it says, will be granted to eat. Eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jonathan Edwards says, sure proof of election is that one holds on to the end. End quote. The tree of life. The tree of life points back to Genesis 3, the source of eternal life. Points forward to Revelation 22 in the tree in the paradise of God's garden. Garden. This promise declares that those who conquer will enjoy the very presence of God. The very presence, the thing that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned and ate of the tree of knowledge. They disobeyed God's command and were expelled from the garden of Eden. They were kicked out from eating from the tree of life. Yet ultimately, yet ultimately sin and evil will be destroyed. And believers now are promised to be brought in to the presence of God, into this renewed and restored paradise. And in the new earth and the new heavens, overcomers and conquerors will eat of the tree of life and will live and enjoy God's presence, this gift of eternal life. In God's paradise, in the garden, in, with the tree of life, we are restored to that relationship. We are stored, restored into fellowship. We have eternal life with him. So let me end it this way. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, eternal life, presence with God, which is in the paradise of God. Revelations chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus is, is announced as the conquering the conquering one who is a lamb. Conquering one who is a lamb. Standing as though he was slain. Jesus conquered by faithfully doing what God called him to do. The gospel. The cross. The purchasing of our souls. By his substitutionary atonement. By his blood that was shed. By his resurrection from the grave. His conquest. His conquering enables us to conquer just like him through faithfulness to God even unto death. And we don't die for sin. He dies, but he conquered when he was faithful because he was faithful. Revelations twelve eleven, And they have conquered him. That is, the, the people of God have conquered the enemy by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Family, Jesus wants us to know that 
He is present in the church. He is in control of his church. He is protecting and providing and possesses the church. And it is his bride. Even King's Chapel. He is calling us to remain faithful to the truth. His word. To test everything in the changing culture. In light of the revealed word of God. But always to remember love. Always to rehearse the gospel, how God's love has been poured out into our hearts, Roman tells us, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God demonstrates or shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember Repent, repeat, and enjoy. Dr. Aiken, again, and I'm, I'm going to just leave this with you, says this. And, and this, is, this, is, this is hard for me to read. Tell me what you think about, and I will tell you what you love. Tell me what you talk about, and I will tell you what you love. Tell me what excites you, and I will tell you what you love. May the answer always be Jesus. Those who conquer will eat from the tree of life. The tree of life will be infinitely satisfying. And those who fail to conquer because they prized other things over Jesus will feel infinite remorse. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for these seven letters to these churches as we look into our own souls and our own lives. Beginning with me and the other pastor leaders of this community and, and those who lead. May we remember the gospel and always put the love of Jesus and the love of others as a foundation of all that we do. May we stand against false teachers and may we stand against false teaching. But Lord, may we never lose sight of the gospel. And the love you have for us. May we balance love and truth. Always and forever. And Father we pray. Uh, as, as church. As a body. As people. As your community here at King's Chapel. That if need be. We will remember. We will uh, repent. And we will repeat. The things that we have done. And, and, and done in your name. For your glory. Through the gospel. Because of the gospel. And may we never get to that place. Where we're doing it. To be righteous but doing it because of Christ's righteousness that has clothed us and that it propels us to love and good deeds. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.